Today, I believe the Lord is encouraging us to fight for the faith. To fight for the faith. The question is, what does it mean to fight the good fight of faith? Or to fight for the faith? Or to contend for the faith? Many of you have read that in your Bible, contend for the faith. What does this mean? Today, we're also going to look at the marks of deception. When is deception creeping in to our lives individually, into our families, and into our church family? Because the way to fight or contend for the faith is to silence deception. How? With truth. There's no possible way for you and I to silence deception in our own lives without flipping the switch, the light switch of God's word so that he will beam light into our lives. The reason somebody is letting go of the faith is because they are being deceived. The only way to become undeceived is to receive truth. There's no possible way to overthrow a lie except for with a truth. Amen? The Apostle John was first a disciple of John the Baptist before he became a follower of Christ. And the reason it's important for us to look at John is because we're actually walking through the book of John. And so um, before this Apostle John that wrote the Gospel of John and also wrote Revelation, before he became a disciple of Christ, he was a disciple of John the Baptist. And he was already in the ministry with Jesus when his original teacher, John the Baptist, was beheaded by Herod Antipas. So can you imagine that your original father in the faith, the one who raised you as a disciple, the one who introduced you to Jesus, is now beheaded? What are some of the things that John, the apostle, needed to deal with? Since that brutal and shocking experience, John, after that, after losing his original mentor, now goes through not just the crucifixion of Jesus, but also goes through viewing and knowing every single one of the disciples that were with him, part of the twelve, was also murdered. In Acts chapter 12, verse 2, we read that John's brother James was murdered by King Herod, who had him speared to death. The apostle John lived another 50 years after that, after the martyrdom of his own brother, uh, to see for the next 50 years the cruel deaths of all of the other apostles at the hand of, hands of hate-filled unbelievers. Now history tells us, not the word, but history tells us that during John's life, he saw how Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by a sword wound. He saw in those next 50 years, James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown from the southeast pinnacle of the temple. He fell about 100 feet and, um, because he wouldn't deny his faith. Then what happened? Those who threw him off the pinnacle, which they believe is the same pinnacle that Jesus stood on when he was tempted by the devil. His half-brother was thrown off that same pinnacle. And when they found him, after having fallen a hundred feet, he had not yet died. And then they clubbed him to death. The apostle John went through all of this. Then John also saw Bartholomew, 
known as Nathaniel. He was a missionary to Asia. He ministered in the present-day Turkey and was martyred for the preaching of the gospel in Armenia. He was beat to death with a whip. John, the apostle, also saw Andrew crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. He also saw the Apostle Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India during one of his missionary uh, trips to establish the church there. He saw Matthias, the Apostle chosen to replace Judas Iscariot, was stoned to death, uh, well stoned, but then beheaded. And finally, he saw the Apostle Paul was tortured and then beheaded by Emperor Nero in AD 67. John was then sentenced to mines in prison on the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote his prophetic book of Revelation. Now this man, who has seen so much, who has been through so much, comes to the end of his life, and he pens these words. How many of you know that it's, it's intriguing to hear the wisdom fall from the lips of somebody who has gone through much in life? Well, imagine this man, John, who was raised by John the Baptist, then became a disciple of Jesus, and then saw all of that hardship. He saw the crucifixion. He saw the resurrection. He saw the ascension. Here he is. He's about to say something at the end, and we should hear what it is. He says right here in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than this. To hear my children walking in the truth. There is nothing that brings greater joy to me than to see those around me, the children of God, those whom I have raised in the faith, free from deception. Walking in truth. Not being given to lies. This is the greatest joy. There's nothing that I'd rather have. Now, John didn't say, all I want is to see my children happy. That he did not say. But that is what almost 99% of all Christians would say regarding their own children. I just want to see them happy. Or they might say, I just want to see them succeed. Or here's one, I just, I just want to see them not being bullied. I want to see them not have hardships. I want, to know, I want to see them never be offended by anyone. You know, these are the kind of things people now wish for their children. But here, John, after having seen everything that he has seen, he says, I have no greater joy than this, and that is to hear my children. Uh, hear my children are walking in the truth. I realize he was referring to God's people. However, I don't know if there's many things worse than seeing your own children or anybody you love dearly living in deception or living in lies. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's, you will know the, you probably know the feeling, uh, the burden of knowing somebody you love is walking in darkness. Now, last week, um, I'm, I'm just so blessed by the team and by the church as a whole of how wonderful the service went last week. We watched most of it online before we entered the service we were going to, and then we watched the whole thing online later on. And I can tell you, um, it was just such a blessing to us, everybody that participated, it was wonderful. Thank you so much. Let's give the team a hand that ran the service last week. The worship team did great. Everybody did great. 
But I also want to uh, thank Dave. He made such a great point last week as he discussed general faith versus saving faith. Faith is not a general understanding of believing for a more hopeful outcome. Like just keep the faith, everybody. Just believe in yourself or believe things will go better. That's not, that's not biblical faith. That's not saving faith. Saving faith has to do with your trust in Christ for paying the penalty of your sin. If faith is not relating to our sin, it is not biblical faith. And there's a whole faith message that has everything to do but with sin. And that's not, that's not actual biblical faith. That's general faith. That is not saving faith. And I remember because I, you know, I used to be, I've been a pastor my whole life. You know, if you, I remember standing in South Africa in, in front of a couple of people and I figured this thing out. What does it mean to be saved? Well, you have to have faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. Well, what is faith? Well, anyone who comes to God must believe that he's good and that he's the rewarder of those who seek him. So how would you know somebody's saved? Because they have faith. Well, how do you know they have faith? Well, you have to ask them a couple of questions. Like, what are you believing for? Because God is good. And He's the rewarder of those who seek Him. If anyone wants to come to God, you must believe that. Well, if you believe that God is good, what are you believing for? And then they would say, well, I'm believing. Here's my, here's my vision board. This is what I'm believing for. Therefore, this is proof that I have faith in a good God that rewards those who seek Him, right? And if they can prove to you that they have a vision board believing that God is good and reward are those who seek Him, and they can prove it by the vision board that they have, well, evidently they're pleasing God because without this faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, folks, all of that has got nothing to do with saving faith. That is not what the Bible is talking about saving faith. That's a misinterpretation of biblical saving faith. Biblical saving faith is when you put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. So it's very important for us to understand the faith of scriptures. And not allow a pagan humanistic faith to, increase, in, uh, to, to, to creep into our belief. And this is one of the things that Dave was articulating last week. Which I thought uh, Dave did a fantastic job. So the theme of fighting deception... And our need to contend for the faith echoes throughout scriptures. Now, we are told to contend for the faith. And we are not told to contend for a humanistic faith. We are not told to contend for a pagan faith. We are not told to contend for the same faith George Michael sang about when he said, you got to keep the faith, faith, faith. Or <laughs> we're, not tend, we're not to contend for the faith of, of a Bon Jovi. you got to keep the faith. You know, we to contend for a biblical faith. Fight for that faith. And that faith is a saving faith. It echoes throughout scriptures in 1 Timothy 6 verse 11 and 21. Paul charges Timothy to fight the good fight of faith as a soldier of God. Defending the true gospel. In other words, don't be deceived, Timothy. And as a result, grab onto a twisted version of the gospel. Don't grab onto another gospel. 
because of deceptions, but rather fight the good fight of a biblical faith, a saving faith. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, verse 27, Paul advises believers at the church in Corinth to see themselves as runners in a race who run in such a way as to get the prize as opposed to being deceived and as a result running in vain. In, one, in Philippians 1, verse 27, Paul writes to the Philippians, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one, in the, in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. There it is. Striving together as one for what? The faith of the gospel. A biblical faith. In other words, we now see here Paul echoing this throughout the New Testament. Fight for the faith. Run in such a way you don't lose. Strive to um, uh, fight for the faith of the gospel. Contend for the faith. Now, there are many truths worth dying for. There are truths worth dying for. And um, this is important for me to explain to you today because... How many of you have realized that evil is becoming more and more complicated? Like the world is so complicated, everybody becomes wrong, no matter where they stand, in one way or another. You know, some people are dying from the vaccine, others are being saved by a vaccine, I'm assuming. I don't know. But I looked at some of the numbers from different reports. And it's shocking. Um, I have not uh, talked to my half-sister for um, over 20 years, but two weeks ago passed away from a blood clot in the brain. Now these are specifically have come from the J uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And um, uh, her name is Mandy, my dad's first wife, um, he, it was his oldest daughter. But so, you know, I, somebody posts on my Facebook page, hey, listen, um, uh, get your behind in gear and get, get, the, get the vaccine already. And um, I'm like, how, how is it that you can tell me that? And he says, yo, well, what about these numbers? I'm like, you see, nobody, everybody's, everything's getting so complicated, right? Now, I'm not here trying to fight for or against something. I'm just trying to tell you things are complicated, right? You can't hardly say anything without getting completely blasted. But in many ways, you know, I mean, life is complicated. Uh, you can't go anywhere. You have to get vaccinated and you have to wear a mask and you have to prove your vaccination certificate in some places now, especially in New York and so forth. But you don't have to prove anything at the southern border. <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> you know, like life is complicated, right? Life is complicated. I mean, we just spent, uh, what, $2 trillion training the army in Afghanistan. Life is complicated. What are those people supposed to feel now who have lost? Tina's brothers went there, you know. And so now people have spent so much of their money, so much of their time. People have lost lives. And life is complicated. And so my message to you is, it's easy to get entangled in a lot of those things, and I think that there's, to a degree one should. But there are truths worth dying for. 
And what I, what I get from this is that there's a, there's a body of doctrine worth fighting for. Just like John experienced throughout his life, he has seen so much loss of life. And all of it for what? The sake of what? Truth. Whether it be his first mentor, John the Baptist, his Savior, Jesus, his half-brother, James, whether it be all the disciples that were with him, they all died, what? For standing for truth. There is a truth with fighting for. There is a truth with dying for. And not every truth is worth dying for. Right? But there is truth worth dying for. Being willing to put your life on the line for truth is hard for relativistic, uh, relativistic culture to understand. When truth is relative, it's never worth dying for. If truth is a sliding scale, the moment somebody puts a gun to your head, you go like, okay, well, it's not that true. <laughs> you know? So when, when you were raised in a country, in a culture that believed in relativism, you don't understand the fact that there are truths worth dying for. There are mountains upon which you ought to go and die. We might be able to imagine dying for people, but not many today consider any truth so precious they will fight for it and even die for it. Like a parent will give their life for their child. But will that parent give his life for truth? The faith that we cherish and hold dear was preserved for us with the blood of hundreds of martyrs. Thousands of martyrs. From 1555 to 1558, Queen Mary, the Catholic ruler in England, had 288 Protestant reformers burnt at the stake. These were men, we have all the details of their lives, men like John Rogers, John Hooper, John Bradford, many of them called John, <laughs> Nicholas Ridley. Why were these men burnt, 288? Because they stood by a truth. The truth that the real presence of Jesus' body is not in the Eucharist, but in heaven at the Father's right hand. For that truth, they were burnt and they were willing to be burnt. Blood of the martyrs is a powerful testimony that the faith once for all delivered to the saints is worth contending for. It's worth running for. It's worth striving, striving for. It is worth even dying for. So in the exact same way, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, echoes his absolute clarity as he makes an urgent plea to contend for the faith. He also then explains how to go about contending for this faith. I want to read to you just a portion out of Jude and I want to encourage you today, if you will, uh, make this your goal for today or tomorrow. In your next reading of the scriptures, go to the book of Jude. It's the second last book in the Bible. Really short. Just read it. It'll take you literally four and a half minutes. So here in Jude, chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, it says, My dear friends, I was doing my best to write to you about the salvation we share in common. When I felt the need of writing at once to encourage you to fight for the faith, which once and for all God has given to His people. For some godless people 
have slipped in unnoticed among us. Persons who distort the message about the grace of our God in order to excuse their immoral ways and who reject Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Long ago, the scriptures predicted the condemnation they have received. Let me just stop there for a moment. So you see that he was actually setting out to write to them about the salvation that we have in common. But then something more urgent came up, and now he had to encourage them, okay, it's time for you to go die on a hill. It's time for you to not pick a fight, but stand up against those who are picking fights with your God. You see, when reproaches against him, when reproaches are made against him, it ought to fall upon you. See, it's like this. When somebody, have to, when somebody says something or lies about your earthly father, you would get really angry really quick. When somebody slanders your earthly father, you're quick to defend and stand up or a parent you love. But when somebody lies about the word of God, well, you know, I mean, they just, that's the way they view it. You know, that's the way they interpret it. That's, you know, that's their, that's their perspective of God didn't give us the Bible to confuse us. The, the Bible is more articulate than any person could ever be. Not Shakespeare. Nobody's ever been as articulate as the inspired written word of God. And God communicates to us His attributes, His mind, His ways, and His will through His scriptures, right? That's the will of God. The Bible you hold in your hands called the will of God. That's his will. And he articulates it to us. And when somebody violates his will, when somebody violates his character or his attributes or lies about him or trivializes him and it doesn't touch us, that should cause a red flag to go up. That really should. Because if we can't at that level say, hey, whoa, wait a minute. That is not who my dad is. That is, that is not true. If we can't do it at that level... Trust me, there's no other level we'll do it at. We'll talk about martyrs all day long, and we'll think about how great they were, and yeah, everybody should, but I'll, I never will. It's almost like people who say, one day when I have more money, I will become generous. <laughs> That's not true. Generosity has to do with percentages, not with amounts. As if I can't live generous at this percentage, I cannot live generous at that level. If this is already too much of a problem for me, imagine if you times that by a thousand or ten thousand, it becomes just that much more unimpossible uh, uh, un uh, to do. All right, there you go. So here, Jude 1, verse 3 and 4, he explains how he was going to talk to them about salvation. But then this thing came up and he says, Look, folks, it's time for you to fight. For the faith. This faith, which once for all God has given to His people. It's time for you to stand up for the faith. Folks, when you look at what's happening in the world, more and more do I see, if the church doesn't become vocal, the church will become silent altogether. The church is being silenced to a degree and the church is allowing herself to be silenced, and she shouldn't. But here's the problem. Many 
of the voices that are telling the church to be quiet are the voices inside of the church. They're telling the people of God because evil has become so complicated. Well, it's time you better start loving your neighbor. What does that mean? That means back off. Close those doors. Be done. You know, literally, um, I, I was searching through so many different videos, and I had so many videos to show you today, but I didn't want to take up all of the service to show you what I'm talking about. But it's a scary thing. And as a minister, having been reprimanded by ministers for not towing the line as they do, but things have become complicated. And all I can tell you is the church needs to start being the church more now than ever before. In verse 17 verse through 21, it says, But remember, my friends, what you were told in the past by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, When the last days come, people will appear who will make fun of you, people who follow their own godless desires. These are the people who cause divisions, who are controlled by their natural desires, who do not have the Spirit. Verse 20, But you, my friends, keep on building yourselves up in your most sacred faith. All right? Keep building yourself up in your most sacred faith. Now, he's not talking about a general faith here. He's talking about a saving faith. He's talking about a faith that comes from the very Word of God. He says, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not saying pray in tongues. He says, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and keep yourselves in the love of God as you wait for our Lord Jesus Christ in His mercy to give you eternal life. Jude is con concerned about the faith. The Christian message of the gospel is under attack as uninformed people are spreading dangerous lies. So to contend, contend for the faith is to fight for the truth about our Heavenly Father. The truth about God, His character, His attributes, His power, His sovereignty, His ability, His will, who He is, and what He does, who He calls, who He loves, who He says. All these things are important for us to know in order to contend for those things about God. Because if we don't know these things about God, we'll just be okay with what everybody says about God. No, we need to contend for what the Bible says about who He is and what His will is. In other words, with our doctrine, you are like a military man with his hands tied and no ammunition. You have no way of contending for anything unless you actually know what the Bible says about who God is, His attributes, His will, the way He works, and His plan of salvation. So to contend for the faith is to fight for the truth about our Heavenly Father. To fight for the meaning and the understanding and the sharing of the true gospel. What is the, do we understand the true gospel of grace? Do we, do, we, uh, do we know the meaning of God's plan of salvation? And do we stand up in a way of sharing that with the world? I wanted to show you just a short video here of Sarah Fisher. She was a guest minister during the chapel at a Seattle-based Christian college. A Christian college. And here she is articulating her view of Father God. Go ahead. Thank you. Mostly women who struggled with language around God the Father. 
They talked about having abusive fathers themselves or knowing too many men who abused power in a paternalistic way. They were asking the question, do I still believe in God the Father? They were angry and understandably so to discover how much patriarchy had determined what texts and what prayers would form them. I had a classmate in graduate school who wrote a beautiful song. The refrain went, I'm singing songs that were meant for someone else. Sometimes I wonder if language and the life of faith are mortal enemies. To assign a gender to God the Father is to limit God. So why am I calling God, God the Father? Because God is a source as fathers are, a creator as fathers are, a caregiver and guide and source of wisdom as fathers should be a being who sees farther than I do. Because the first person of the Trinity is the giver of light and life, to call that person Father, Abba, is to claim an intimate relationship. To say that we cannot call God Father because the world is full of imperfect fathers and even bad fathers, is to deny the way that God both transcends and models human fatherhood. To attach male or female pronouns to God is to say that God is only one thing. When God is everything. To limit God to being just male or just female is as limiting as to say that the gift of marriage is only to be shared between a male and a female human. As limiting as requiring pronouns for humans to be set in stone at birth. It's kind of like living, limiting the ocean or saying the ocean is male or female. When people assign gender to the ocean, as they sometimes do, they know it's a metaphor. Let me be clear. I do not believe that God is a metaphor. But I do believe that gendered language for God is metaphor. Praying to a God who is both father and beyond gender is mysterious and messy, which is perfect for us humans, right? It's perfect for me anyway. You know, um, that was Sarah Fisher, guest minister during a chapel meeting at Seattle-based 
Christian college. It's a Christian college. And what I wanted to mention here is that you've got to know from understanding the Gospels of Grace, you have to understand that... Let me say it this way. Many people struggle to wrap their minds around that. And you know why? Because they no longer believe that God judges the humanity. Say it again. People no longer believe God's wrath is still being poured out today. They don't believe that. They believe it was all done at the cross and zero wrath. Yes, wrath against your sins. You who are in Christ swallowed up at the cross. All, every drop of God's wrath against those in Christ swallowed up at the cross. But the rest of the world are still experiencing the wrath of God. And if you understood the wrath of God from a scriptural perspective, which is that blinds people's minds, blinds people's eyes, causes them to have reprobate minds, right is wrong, right is wrong, uh, wrong, uh, right is wrong, wrong is right, and that they are given to sexual perversions, then you will recognize that to be the wrath of God on those people. She is God's wrath on that school and those who believe it. Go read Romans chapter 1 yourself and you'll see this is how God gives the... He gives them over to the very thing that they so love to play with. And so, really, instead of being angry, there should be compassion. My point is that God calls you and I to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith. And there is a truth, a set of doctrines that we should even be willing to die for. Now, of course... I'm saying that that should make you compassionate toward her. But if those words don't anger you about what's been spoken about your father, that should be a little red flag, right? Somebody wants to emasculate my father that way should anger me, right? In a way. Somebody wants to destroy the Trinity the way she just did should infuriate me. Somebody wants, to, uh, uh, um, somebody wants to violate the word of God the way she just did. It should infuriate me, right? But for her, I should have compassion. But for those thoughts, I need to pull down. How? With the truth of God. And so um, I can show you literally, I can stay here all day and show you video after video of the same in even churches that we are more familiar with but uh, unfortunately, it's rampant, and it's time for the church to actually know what the Bible says about God and stand up for who He is. Uh, there's a Facebook post the other day, and I'll, I'll just highlight this one. There are so many of these. But here's something. Tina actually got into a disagreement with this person on Facebook, which isn't always the best idea. But so many people say God is in control, this lady said. So many people say God is in control. That a false statement. Well, just think about that. If this Christian lady wants to say, many people think that God's in control, that's a false statement. Well, then who is God? Not, not the one, you know, that I thought was God. <laughs> Apparently, whoever's in control is the one. 
Maybe you're wondering why I said that. She says, if you, if you think about it, God is good, evil is bad. If God were in control, then he would be responsible for everything that is happening and has happened that was evil and good. In other words, she's saying if God was in control, then he's responsible for everything you see happening on the earth. He'd be responsible for putting sickness, disease, poverty, calamity, and all the horrible stuff on people. We know that's not true. God has given every believer authority through the power of Jesus Christ, whose spirit dwells within every believer. Most do not even know that or tap into it. Okay. So there's so many things just absolutely heretical about what has been said there. If you want to define God as if you want to define goodness the way you want to define it and then say, well, therefore, it has to be God. Well, then you're God. Yeah. Right. If you want to say that, that that was not God, well, then you're God. Because Romans chapter 1 said that that, what you just saw in the video, that is God. Giving people to that kind of stuff. That is God's wrath. That's Him choosing to pour His wrath out. And so... You want to say it's not God. It was her. Yes, it was her. She will stand before God. She is guilty before God for every single word she said. She will pay a price for every single word she says. And at the same time, it was God who sovereignly gave her to it. Why? Because she deserves it. And she is the wrath of God on those who deserve the wrath of God. God is not unjust. He's just. You go like, but I, I deserve hell too. I know that's called mercy, not injustice. You see, to some, God gives justice. To others, He gives mercy. But nobody ever receives injustice from God. Let me say that again. To some, they receive justice from God. He pours His wrath out on them. To others who deserve the wrath of God, they don't get it because they get mercy. But nobody gets injustice from God. Amen. God is never unjust. He's always just, and He chooses to have mercy upon whomever He chooses to have mercy upon. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So we have to, and I'm going to close with this, combat, stand for truth. 2 Corinthians 10, 3, 5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For, we for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, <clears throat> but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortress fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that raises up, raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He wasn't talking about his own thoughts. He was talking about the world's thoughts right there in that context. So when we are called in the book of Jude to contend for the faith, we were called to fight against heretical lies in our own lives and in our families' lives. All heresy needs to be addressed head on. Pulling down the strongholds that exalt itself against the knowledge of God means our battle is a battle against biblical error. Our battle is warring against biblical error in our own lives. This is... In the last five years, I can't tell you how many millions of times I have died because I have to war myself. I have to fight biblical error within myself. And one of the strongest strongholds within me is philosophy. It's when I philosophize about a spiritual 
God, who's, when my philosophy trumps my theology, this is a, this is a problem, right? <laughs> my theology has to determine my philosophy. Otherwise, I will be given to deception. Pulling down strongholds that exalts itself against the knowledge of God means my battle is against biblical error. You see, we battle against speculations, opining. Well, I believe. Well, I don't see it that way. You know. Well, that's not. That's not how I interpret it. The lady says to Tina. Tina says, "I wasn't interpreting. That's actually a scripture. I was just reading it, right? And just reading the scripture contradicts your statement. The Bible says God is in charge over and over and over again. He's King. He's Lord. He's God. No one can frustrate His plans. Who can?" Who can withhold the hand of God? He, make, he lifts up kings and he pulls down kings. And you're telling me he's not in charge. How do you want to interpret those verses? <laughs> it's like, you know, it says over and over again, God is in charge. You go like, what about the evil? I know. Many get mercy, but many get justice. So our battle is against speculations. Our battle is against viewpoints. Our battle is against world views. Our battle is against, against concepts, ideas, ideologies, and religions that are not biblical. What you're seeing around the world is, is a battle of worldviews. That's what it is. Spiritual warfare is an ideological battle. It is an intellectual battle. You're not, you know, for you to say, I bind you, Satan, I pull you down. Like, Really? That's not, what, that's not almost what that means. Because didn't you bind him yesterday too? Somehow again today he's loose. That's not nearly what that means. Because your spiritual warfare is against ideological battles. It's against lies. It's against deceptions. Intellectual battles. A battle for perspective. Real spiritual warfare is about assaulting error. What is the one thing that destroys error? Truth destroys error. Truth destroys lives. And if the church does not know the truth, then we are like a massive army without any weapons. The people who trivializes doctrine is the person who trivializes truth. The person who trivializes Bible doctrine is like the soldier whose hand, who hands over all of his weapons, who hands over all of, all of his ammunition. He says, well, I'm not... You know, eventually somebody said to Tina, well, you know what? I'm going to just believe the Spirit. How is the Spirit and the Scripture divorced? <laughs> somebody, uh, I was teaching on the sovereignty of God, and a young man says to me, yeah, you know what? I believe in the sovereignty of the Spirit. I'm like, how, how, okay. You know. You cannot divorce the Scripture from the Spirit or the Spirit from the Scripture. The person who trivializes the Scripture trivializes the Spirit of God. Without biblical doctrine, there is no biblical truth. There is no biblical, without biblical truth, there is no way of spiritual warfare. So the five marks of deception. Am I deceived? Am I deceived? We have to ask ourselves this question. Is our church deceived? We have to ask ourselves that question. Is my pastor deceived? We have to ask ourselves that question. And here are five marks of deception. So I'm saying... <laughs> You know, it's kind of weird saying, you have to ask if I'm deceived. And this is how you know if I am. <laughs> you, know? you have to ask yourself these questions. And when you filter this through, 
critical thinking, you'll see it to be true. Number one, deception comes when, deception comes when, number one, a doctrine glorifies man instead of God. A doctrine glorifies man and not God. Deception comes when I hear the truth of God's word and I do not act on it. Do not deceive yourselves, the Bible says, hearing the word but not doing it. You deceive yourself, the Bible says. Number three, deception comes when I believe a spiritual system of thought that I cannot find the apostles practicing in scriptures. Let me just quickly pause there. Don't read further, okay? Uh, I believe a spiritual system of thought that I cannot find the apostles practicing in scriptures. For instance, I mentioned to you earlier on vision boards. Which apostle practiced vision boards? All right. Nobody believed for bigger homes. Nobody believed for any of that. You don't find the apostles practicing their faith that way because that's not a biblical faith. That is a humanistic faith rooted in paganism and it's less than 200 years old. Now, if you want an ancient Christianity that's 2,000 years old, make sure that the very spiritual system of thought that you have was actually practiced by the apostles. In the Council of Nicaea, they had to meet because there was a question regarding the divinity of Christ. And Athanasius basically finished off the debate by saying, could you please show me one time where any one of the apostles or the early church fathers preached your message, where they practiced your system of thought. One example, and of course they couldn't show because all of the apostles and the early church fathers believed in the divinity of Christ. And so debate over Council Nicaea. And you have to do the same thing, I have to do the same thing. Deception comes in when I believe a, sp a spiritual system of thought that I cannot find the apostles practicing in scriptures. Number four, deception comes when pride has taken root, resulting in me no longer being teachable. When I'm no longer teachable, let me just pause there for a second. The person that cannot sit with the Bible between you and them and discuss the scriptures is the person who's no longer teachable. Like, no, I don't, I believe my way, you believe your way. I don't have a way. I'm asking you to interpret these scriptures that say that God is in control. You interpret them for me. Yeah, there's 25 of them right here. You tell me what these scriptures mean. If they don't mean God is in control, what do they mean? Like, you tell me what the Bible means. Well, that's not how I view it. Well, you can't interpret them because they don't match the rest of your system of thought, right? That you carved out. That's called eisegesis. Exegesis is when you say, here's the whole counsel of God. Let me pull out of it everything. And it has to have synthesis, meaning it has to harmonize with the rest of the scriptures. And in that way, I know that I'm interpreting it accurately. And so pride has taken root. This is how I know deception comes in. Resulting in me no longer being teachable. Evidence of my pride is when I'm not looking for instruction on what to believe, but only looking for affirmation in what I already believe. All right? Hey, listen. My guy that I listen to, he says, he says different. Okay, well, we're not talking about your guy. We're talking about the verse. Okay? The Bible says God's in control. The Bible says he lifts up one nation and he pulls another one down. 
The Bible says that he holds the heart of the king in his hand and he causes it to go whichever way he wants to. He says that he frustrates the plans of the nations. Nations have plans and God says, I'll frustrate them. They're not coming to pass. No man makes history outside of God. Not even Nero. Not Pontius Pilate. Nobody makes history outside of God. God has it all sorted out. He is the one that presides over history. And the Bible says that he's in control. Well, that doesn't work with my philosophy. What about all those little children that suffers? I don't know about your philosophy. I'm just asking you to interpret the verse for me. That's all. The Bible does say that. Now, what are you going to do with it? And that is why Jesus said, Blessed is the man who's not offended in what I say. Blessed is the man who's not offended at my words. Because, my, because Jesus' words ain't all that easy. It, was, it, it cracked me up. <clears throat> um, you know, Tina does Women of the Word, and so they're reading systematically throughout the Scriptures, but in how it was written chronologically. Like, for instance, the book of Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible, right? And so how people are reading through Job, how people are reading through Lot and his daughters and what happened there, and how people are reading through how God, <laughs> how God decides pestilence on you, death on you. Like, people are like, whoa, this is not the God I serve. I know. This is the problem. What about the God of the Bible? And Jesus said, hey, blessed are you when you are not offended at me. Because I give justice to whom I will, and I give mercy to whom I will, and nobody will ever receive injustice from me. I'm God. I'm God. That's why death humbles me. Death humbles me. Do you know that we've all, I mean, God has counted our days. Death humbles me. It doesn't matter what that person's opinion is. He will stand before God at the time God wants him to stand there. Why don't we just humble ourselves before God and say, God, you are God. Meaning, you, there's no other authority above you. There's no power above you. There's no architect above you. And then finally, number five, deception comes when... I am constantly chasing after the products of Jesus that Jesus offers, but not after Christ himself. Let's fight the fight of faith. Die on a hill somewhere, will you? When you find somebody who can never take a stand anywhere, watch out. They're playing both sides. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I pray that you that you rise up big within us, Father. That you cause your people to speak truth. Because there's no better way of reflecting who you are. You are truth. And we cannot reflect you by being silent. We cannot reflect you by compromising. We cannot compromise our way into your will. The only possible way is to side with you 100%. And Lord, we don't want to have one foot in the world, one foot in the church and in the scriptures. Lord, we want to stand solidly on your side of the line. Lord, that you will count us worthy of being soldiers for you, soldiers for truth, that in love we will speak truth. In love we will speak truth. 
Thank you for giving us the compassion for those who do receive your justice, that our hearts would break for them, but at the same time that we will speak your love, your truth in love, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Did you get something out of the word?